to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll be looking uh, at verses 1 to 10 today. Second Corinthians chapter 12 says this, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think, of me, think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, our world tells us that the way that we succeed, the way that we're successful, is by being strong. If you think about what is kind of our ideal vision of what life would be like, it's a vision of strength. In our ideal world, our families would be strong and healthy. We'd have a great job. We'd have lots of financial resources. We'd have great relationships. We wouldn't have problems with our relationships. Uh, we would do things that made us happy. We'd be satisfied in the work that we do. So we think about kind of our culture's defini definition of success, and it involves strength. That our families are strong, we have good jobs, everything's going great. But our lives aren't always like that, right? I mean, even the best kind of, even in the best circumstances, our lives are kind of plagued with weakness. Uh, our families get sick. Families have health problems. Uh, families get uh, debilitating illness. Family members pass away. Uh, sometimes we struggle to pay the bills. Sometimes we're struggling uh, just to make ends meet. Uh, sometimes we have problems with our relationships. Some of us have dealt with divorce or separations. Uh, some of us have been victims of abuse. Sometimes the things that we do don't satisfy our hearts. We feel like we're just kind of going through the motions. And so there's kind of a difference between our actual lives and our ideal life. And sometimes when we look at the two, two, those two kind of things, our actual and ideal, our, our, our actual life is so different than our ideal that we're just kind of discouraged and it leads to kind of depression and sadness. And we have these questions of like, if, if God loves me, if God cares about me, then why does he allow me to have this weakness? Why doesn't he take this burden away from me? Why doesn't he take this pain away from me? These are honest questions. But I think the Bible calls us to kind of a different perspective. The Bible calls us to something different. The Bible tells us that we succeed through weakness. That weakness is part of God's program for us. Part of the plan he has for us. In the book of Matthew, 
In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 11, Jesus says this. He says this about the people who are blessed or happy. He said, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You think about the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and they were revolutionary in Jesus' day, and they're revolutionary in our our day, because kind of the prevailing mindset was, if you are strong, then you are blessed. You'd think that Jesus would say in the ancient world that the mindset was, Blessed are you who are rich, for you have been blessed by God. Blessed are you kings and rulers, for you have given, been given power by God. Blessed are you when no one reviles you or speaks evil of you, because you've been given comfort by God. In the ancient mindset, and even in our own cultural mindset, it's if you're strong, if you have it all together, then you're happy, you're blessed by God. So that's not what Jesus says. Jesus sees it differently. And I think Paul kind of struggled with this kind of dichotomy between kind of our, his actual life and kind of his ideal life. Now, Paul had been given incredible privileges, uh, the, maybe even the greatest privileges of anyone in the history of the church. He describes this experience that he uh, went to, he describes going to the third heaven. And uh, he, there's a lot of details he doesn't know about that. He says, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. Uh, there's a lot of questions I have about it. God knows what, it, what really happened, but I know that I was transported in the third heaven. Now, what was the third heaven? Uh, we don't know for sure, but what he may have been talking about is you, you know, just go outside, and when you think about the heavens, we think about heaven, we think about the place where God dwells. But in the ancient world, when they talked about the heavens, the heavens was kind of just the sky. It's that which was above. So if you go outside and look, look above you, you see clouds, you see birds, and that would be kind of like the first heaven, the first layer. Then you look above that, and then you see the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven would be the place that's beyond that, the unseen realm where God dwells. So that's probably what he's talking about when he talks about going to the third heaven, which is going into the presence of God. And so he is caught up into heaven. It says in the text that he was told things uh, that cannot be told. He heard things that cannot be told, uh, which man may not be utter. Uh, We don't know exactly what that was, but it probably was in essence secrets, things that were revealed to Paul that he was told he can't tell to anybody else. Again, we don't know exactly what that was or what that looked like, but it was an incredible privilege. And so God had spoken to Paul in so many different ways. He had revealed himself in so many different ways, given him this incredible insight so that he was able to write two-thirds of the New Testament um, and just had more insight into the plan of God maybe than anybody else in the history of the church. But he had this problem, this thorn in the flesh. Thorn in the flesh is something, it says in the text, that it was a messenger of Satan to harass him. Now, biblical scholars have debated what that thorn in the flesh means for a, a long time. 
there's been many different proposals. Uh, many people think it was something physical, maybe that he had poor eyesight. Uh, some people think that maybe it was that he walked with a limp because of all the persecution he had experienced. Uh, some people think it was a digestive issue. Um, many other physical ailments have been thrown out that maybe he dealt with. Um, there's also kind of mental things that he may have dealt with. Some people think the thorn in the flesh was something mental, maybe mental illness, maybe depression, uh, maybe guilt over the fact that he had persecuted the church, um, maybe even sexual temptation, some people suggest. Other people suggest that it was uh, persecution and the fact that every time he tried to go forward and preach the gospel, he had that thorn uh, of persecution. And uh, we really don't know. Uh, I tend to think it was something physical on his body that just you know, bothered him, that hindered him from doing what God was calling him to do, that just gave him pain. But we don't know for sure, and that's okay. You know, sometimes we get caught up in these questions, and here's the, the reality is, if Paul wanted us to know, or if God wanted us to know, he would have told us. So if we needed to know, he would have told us. So we don't need to worry about exactly what it was, but we do know some things about this thorn in the flesh. Number one, it was an ongoing struggle. It says in the text that it was a messenger of Satan, an angel of Satan, to torment me or to harass me. Uh, the word for harass uh, often uh, connotes beating with fists. And it was actually used in Matthew chapter 26, verse 42, when uh, Jesus is being interrogated and, and, and the interrogators spit on him and then they beat him with their fists. Uh, it speaks of kind of brutal, harsh treatment. And so kind of the image of this thorn in the flesh is something that's just kind of beating him continually, that's just kind of pummeling him. And so it's something that's really bothering him, really serious, and it says in the text that he asked the Lord three times to remove it from him. It says actually that he pleaded with the Lord, please remove this from me, and yet God doesn't do that, and he says something remarkable to Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is he telling Paul? He's saying, first, I'm enough for you. My grace is sufficient. No matter what you're experiencing, I'm going to give you the strength and the power that you need to fulfill the purpose that I have for you. And number one, or number two, he says, my power is displayed most perfectly in weakness. That it's through your weakness that I can get the most glory. So I come from a math family. Uh, the Rich Barts are great at math. Um, my, two of my aunts are math teachers. My grandfather was a math teacher. My uncle uh, is a math teacher. Um, my dad is really good at math. Pretty much everybody who's a Rich Bart is good in math. And, uh, except for me. I didn't get that gene. So my grandfather, he was an amazing teacher, one of the best teachers I uh, ever met. And uh, through high school, middle school, high school, I spent a lot of time with him. And uh, he kind of invested a lot in me. And so I, he'd help me with homework and stuff. Um, and he'd help me prepare for exams. And I think about my grandfather. And I knew he was a great teacher for one reason. Now, I, he taught a lot of really brilliant students. He used to teach at NCCC, um, taught some engineers and doctors, people who are really good in math. And to me, that wasn't that impressive. If you have a really good student, it's easy to teach them. But when you have a student that's not naturally good in something, and then you can make them do well, I mean, that's pretty impressive. 
And I knew he was a good teacher because I wasn't naturally that good in math, but I got all A's in all my math classes. It wasn't because I was good in math. I'm not good at math at all, but I had a good teacher. And I had those good teachers that invested in me, and so they took my weakness and made it a strength. And that's what God does. He takes our weakness and he turns those things into strength. And he gets the glory from it because it's clear that it's all of him. It's not a result of our natural abilities. It's not a result of our strength. It's a result of God's grace. And so Paul realizes that this thorn in the flesh can be used for God's glory. That it's a weakness that bothers him. He doesn't like it. But God's going to use it for his purposes. And so he says, okay, that's all right. If God wants to use my strength, that's great. I'm going to rejoice in my strength. If God wants to use my weakness, that's okay. I'm going to rejoice in my weakness. Whatever is necessary to bring glory and honor to him. And so we see Paul's perspective here on the thorn in the flesh. And I think there's a few applications that we can kind of glean from this for today. Uh, The number one application that we are to be grieved over sin, but not to be grieved over our weakness. We're to be grieved over sin, but don't be grieved over our weakness. If we do something that's opposed to God's word, uh, something we know that we shouldn't be doing, uh, we should feel a godly grief, a godly guilt that leads us to repentance, to change, to become the people that God wants us to be. So if we're engaging in something that's sinful, We should feel bad about that and turn to the Lord and repent of those things. But we don't need to be grieved over our weakness. And sometimes I think in our culture, um, kind of success is so intertwined with strength that we almost feel like weakness is a sin. That it's wrong to be weak, wrong to be dependent. That if you're weak, then you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. Are you sick? Well, you must have done something wrong. How did you get yourself in that situation? Do you have relational problems? Well, uh, what did you do to contribute to that? Why do you, why you have relationship problems? If you you're, were following God, if you were a better person, you wouldn't have those problems. We experience financial problems. And it's like, okay, well, if you, if you managed your money better, maybe you wouldn't be having these financial problems. And, and we come to a place where we think about weakness almost as being sin. And there's a difference. Now, any of those things could be caused by sin, and there are situations where uh, suffering and weakness is caused by sin. But weakness in and of itself is not wrong. It's part of the uh, human condition. And so some of us need to kind of take off that false guilt that's, uh, that's on our back. We've been carrying around this false guilt that we feel like our weakness is somehow that we're failing God because of the fact that we're weak. It's not the case. Weakness is part of the human condition. It's part of God's program. And we need to make sure that we take that weight off of ourselves. We don't put that weight on other people. And see, when we're weak, God gets to show his power through us. And some of our weakest moments are those times when we get to see God's grace in action the closest. Some of those times are the times when we get to see him working, when we get to draw close to his presence. How many of you have ever done a resume before? Most of us probably done a resume. Um, so you do a resume and you put all of your best strengths on that, your best accomplishments, your best um, attributes, and you're trying to impress whoever it is, employer or whatnot, uh, so that you get a position. 
there's one man by the name of Adam Johnson, and he did something that was interesting. He did what was called an unresume. And he would kind of put, a, put on paper the things in his life, the categories where he was weak, where he had failed. Uh, some of those categories, one category was school rejections. Uh, it, it included weeding college. He says, I, would, it, I was admitted, but I received no scholarships. Duke School of Divinity. I was waitlisted and eventually rejected. Other sections list his publication proposals rejected. Academic positions rejected. At the end of his unresume, un Johnson writes, I'm full of fears, insecurities, and memories of painful rejections in matters pertaining to jobs, publications, and schools. And why does this matter? Personally, it matters because of an ongoing struggle against pride. We want to have it all together. We want to be strong in all areas of our life. And maybe we look back on moments in our, of our life when we were weak, and we look on them with sadness, and we feel like we failed. Now, sometimes it's maybe sinful choices that led, led us to those things. But if it's just our weakness, we need to look at those things and, and reflect on those and appreciate the moments when God, uh, the, the way that God worked in those moments. Uh, there's a writer by the name of Ma Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, he wrote some really interesting things in his book, David and Goliath. And he looked at a number of successful people, and he found that people generally tended to be successful not in spite of their difficulties, in spite of their weaknesses, but in some ways because of their weaknesses. Uh, he found some fascinating things. He described it as the advantage of disadvantage. Uh, he cites a study from um, the University of London that notes that a third of highly successful uh, entrepreneurs are dyslexic. People like Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, Paul Orphelia. Uh, researcher Sharon Thompson recalls speaking at a prominent university uh, donors group, a number of really, really successful business people. Um, and she asked, uh, how many people have been diagnosed with a learning disorder? And about half of the people raised their hands in that room. Gladwell has some really interesting insights on this. He says there are two possible interpretations for this fact. One is that this remarkable group of people triumphed in spite of their disability. They're so smart and so creative that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggling with reading, could stop them. The second, more intriguing possibility is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder, that they learned something in their struggle that proved to be of enormous advantage. God allows weakness in our life for a reason. And so we, as we experience weakness, we don't need to feel bad about these things. We don't need to lament these things. We need to reflect on them and appreciate them for the way that God's light shines through them. So that's kind of the first application that Paul gives us. The second is that it's okay to ask God to remove weakness, but we must also accept his answer. None of us like weakness. None of us like struggle. None of us like pain. And it's okay to ask God to change our circumstance. We see that um, Paul asked the Lord three times. He pleaded with him, please take this away from, him, from me. And sometimes God answers in the affirmative. Sometimes God says, sure, I'm going to take this away from you. And, you know, maybe he works in our life in a remarkable way, and we become strong in an area of our life that maybe we were previously weak. So sometimes God answers that affirmatively. And sometimes God says, no, I'm not going to take that weakness away, but I'm going to use you despite their, that weakness. And, and there comes a point where we need to kind of shift from Focusing just on our weaknesses to focusing on God. 
that, yeah, we pray that God would change our circumstance, there comes a point where we have to trust him. You look at the people in Scripture, and just about all of them dealt with profound weakness. You think about Abraham. He was called to become a great nation. He didn't have any children. Uh, you think about uh, Moses. He wasn't a good speaker, and he says, God, you've got the wrong guy. I'm not going to be the one that faces down Pharaoh, the, the most powerful person in the known world. Uh, you have Rahab, supposed to help save Israel, but she was a Canaanite and a prostitute. You have Gideon, who was supposed to save Israel from the Midianites, but he was terrified and had this you know, small ragtag army. Uh, David was supposed to become a great king, but he was the youngest in his family. And, and you think about all these people in Scripture, and all of them probably had a moment, a crisis of belief where they looked at what God was calling them to do and said, I can't do it. Like, I don't have the resources to do it. I'm too weak. I don't have what I need to do this. And there came a moment in their lives where they stopped looking at that weakness and started looking to their God and realized that God could use them despite their weakness. And so we pray that God would remove our weakness, but when he says no, we say, okay, God, you're going to have to use me despite my weakness. And I know that you have the power to use me despite my weakness. So that's the second application. And the third is this. God is looking for people who are weak enough to make a difference for him. God is looking for people who are weak enough to make a difference for him. The famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, was once asked uh, why he was so successful in his uh, efforts in China. He said this, It seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. And when he at last found someone, he said, he is weak enough, he'll do. He said this, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. God uses the weak to confound the strong. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 to 29. He says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, the truth is we're all weak. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all imperfect. And we think about the, the distinctions between the weak and the strong, and really it's, it's arbitrary. You know, you think about the people who are the strongest people in your lives. And, you know, think about the strongest people on the world stage. And when you kind of peel back the layers behind that, you find oftentimes that even sometimes they're the weakest people. And sometimes they use their power to kind of uh, deal with their very weak self-esteem. So none of us have it all together. We're all broken. None of us are really strong. The question is, do we realize that? Do we admit that? And do we allow God to use us despite our weakness? Sometimes people will say, well, I don't believe that God could use me. I'm too weak. I don't have it all together. Now, that seems like a really humble statement. Seems like it's really kind of, you know, gracious to say something like that. But it's really a, kind of an arrogant statement to say. It's really a bold statement because it's a statement, it's not about us. It's a statement about God saying, I don't believe that God could use me. I mean, that's a bold thing to say. I don't believe that God could use me despite my weakness. My weaknesses, we're saying in essence, are stronger than my God. 
It's a bold thing to say. God can use us despite our weaknesses. And so Paul rejoices in the fact, yeah, I've got a thorn in the flesh. Yeah, it's, it's beating me continually. I'm getting pummeled by this thorn in the flesh every single day, but it's okay because God is still going to be glorified. God can still use me for his plan. And whether it's in my, with my thorn in the flesh or my strength, he's going to get the glory. I mean, you have the apostle Paul, and he did so much. The last thing that Paul or God wanted was people to say, wow, Paul was a real rock star. I mean, he's, he's awesome. And they didn't want, God didn't want Paul to be the one that was worshipped and glorified. So he had these incredible revelations. God used him in so, such incredible ways. But he wanted to make it clear it's not the vessel. And so Paul you know, probably was a poor speaker. He had this thorn in the flesh. He had these struggles to show it wasn't about him. It was about the power of his God. There's a story about the great uh, concert pianist and prime minister, uh, Ignis Paderewski, it's a fictional story, but I think it's interesting. Um, in the story, a mother is wishing for her son to kind of be encouraged in his piano lessons. And so she takes him to a Paderewski concert. And so they're sitting in the front row, and uh, the mother starts talking with some friends. And uh, she just kind of gets caught up in conversation, and little does she know, her son disappears. And then it comes time for the show to start. The lights go dim. And she is horrified to see her son up on the piano starting to play the piano. But it's too late. She, you know, the con this, the, it's already started. The lights are already down. And he's up there playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Stars. Paderewski comes out. The mother's horrified. How is he going to respond to this? And he says, keep playing. Keep playing. And then he goes, puts his left hand around him, starts adding bass to the song. Then he puts his right hand around him and adds long runs and mesmerizes the audience. I think that's what God does. He uses us despite our broken notes, despite our flawed attempts to please him, despite our weaknesses. He uses us for his glory. He uses us to make something beautiful. 1958, uh, John Stott, a famous theologian and pastor, was uh, doing this outreach in Australia. Um, and it was the last day of the outreach, and uh, the day before he had received word that his father had passed away, and uh, he was dealing with, uh, he was losing his voice and just wasn't feeling well at all, but he didn't feel like he could uh, back out at that point. And uh, listen to what he says uh, about that experience. He said, it was already late afternoon, within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission, so I didn't feel I could back away at that time. I went to the great hall and asked a few students to gather around me. I asked one of them to read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. A student read these verses, and then I asked them to lay hands on me and pray that those verses might be true in my own experience. When time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and narrow ways from Matthew 7. I had to get within a half an inch of the microphone, and I croaked the gospel like a raven. <clears throat> I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't uh, move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. Then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response, larger than any other meeting during the mission, as students came flocking forward. 
commenting on the event afterwards, he mentioned how he had gone back to Australia about 10 times, and on every single trip, somebody would come up to him and say, do you remember the last night of that conference that you gave in 1958? And he'd say, yeah, I remember that. He said, that's the night that I received the Lord. God uses our weaknesses for his glory. It's not about us. It's not about our strength. He uses us for his purposes. And so we don't need to lament the fact that we're weak. We don't need to try to cover those things up. Weaknesses are an opportunity for God to move. And we need to kind of reorient ourselves to that. Just because we're weak, our God is strong. And so our weaknesses are opportunities for God's power to shine forth in our life. The question is, are we people who humbly recognize our need. People who are weak enough to make a difference for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're strong when we are weak. We thank you that you are enough for us. We thank you that no matter what we're facing in our lives, you're there for us, that your grace is sufficient. And Lord, we thank you that you choose to use us despite our imperfections and weaknesses. Lord, we thank you that Your power is displayed through us, even when we're broken. Lord, help us to be people of humility who call upon you in our time of need. People who recognize that we are weak, that we are broken, that we are desperately insecure and desperately in need of you. And as we recognize that, Lord, we trust that you'll use our humility for your glory, that you'll use our weaknesses even to bring a smile to your face so that the world will see your grace The world will see your glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you for everything that you are for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.